Well, good morning, everybody. It is really good to be back with you this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online in the north. So glad that you're here. And again, thank you for your warm uh, welcome. We, uh, as a family, had a great time away, and I deeply appreciate the time you gave us. Today we begin a new series, and we begin really a new ministry year, and our focus is on the Holy Spirit. And so let me begin by asking all of us to stop and to look and to listen, and to truly see. We now as a people that as followers of Jesus and those among us at this moment who are truly seeking Jesus but are not followers of him yet, we are living in a very different world than we did 10, 20, 30, let alone 50 years ago. Canada and much of the West is now truly and fundamentally post-Christian. It's the first time in history where a place has become really post-Christian. We are postmodern, and yet contradiction lives among us because we are modern at the same time. We are deeply sexualized. We are highly multicultural. We are radically globalized. We are mobile. We are connected, and yet we are deeply fragmented. We also, as Christians, now are the edge of society. There is a brewing storm, and it is growing all around us. It is like living between two massive gorillas that are looking at, looking at each other and are about to fight. On one hand, we have a very militant, secular, sexual revolution touching all parts of society and rejecting 10,000 years of history. And on the other hand, we have globally now the rise of dangerous, religious, violent fundamentalism. And the kicker is that both groups, when they look at us, think we are compromised and we are with the other group. The sexual revolution calls us hateful, backwards, and medieval, and the other group that is deeply religious calls us compromised, untruthful, and secular. And in the middle, we stand with Jesus, and we stand with the scriptures, calling for grace and truth, and pointing to life, and looking at one group and saying, no, no, there is never ever legitimacy for violence in the name of God, and you are promoting religion and legalism, and yet on the other hand, we say to the other group, no, you cannot define what is right and wrong, you cannot live a life that God says no to, and we are sitting in the middle. Make no mistake, as biblical, historic, orthodox Christians, we are caught now in the middle of two massive global revolutions. Both are saying that they have the answers for the future of the human race. Both are saying the other is profoundly dangerous, and we are standing in the middle saying both of you are wrong. All right, and that's happening up there, and then there's just us personally. We're all being called, if you're a Christian here this morning, to become more like Jesus in our everyday life. We're called to understand the Bible and love the Scriptures and joyfully submit under the Scriptures. And we're called to meet weekly here to meet Jesus more and serve with our spiritual gifts and connect with one another in not fake but real relationships. And we're called to usher in the kingdom of God more and more. And then I hear the Bible saying that, that Christians will be known by their love. And then when you look in the Bible, the Bible actually defines what love is. It does not allow us to define it. And it says really scary things like this. God-given love is patience all the time and kindness and not envying and not boasting and not being proud and you never dishonor another person if you're loving like Jesus and you're not self-seeking and you're not easily angered. Oh, and here's the kicker. You never, ever, ever, ever keep a record of wrongs, ever. Love does not delight in evil, doesn't get excited by evil, but loves truth and it's always protecting and trusting and hoping and, and persevering. 
Oh, right, and then there's what we're doing here at C4 this year. India and working with friends in Uganda and, and Bangladesh, and then we're praying and fasting to prepare for the next new venue where we're going to reach out and, and launch a whole other site, and then there's a worship album, and there's Alpha and Evangelism and Connect Groups and growing our two current venues, and then we're, we're building here and launching and repairing other ministries that have been broken, and we're praying for ongoing renewal and revival and awakening. Oh, right, and then there's our mission that by glorifying God, we want to enable people of any age to become fully devoted followers of Jesus, not just converts or nice followers of Jesus. No, we decided to use that scary word, fully. And if isn't that enough, then there's, oh, that little vision that we believe God has given us to become a regional church of 10,000 people meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Is anyone this morning overwhelmed? Because I am. When I look at what's happening globally, what's happening in our country, what the call of Jesus is in my life, in your life, and what we're trying to do. And I didn't even mention our great desire to see Durham really meet Jesus en masse and praying for other churches to be revived and changing our thinking and our wants and our affections, which is so profoundly difficult, and changing how we deal with money and sex and power and relationships and courage and having to be a truth teller and yet a holy liver and yet forgiving other people and forgiving myself for all the mistakes I keep doing and reconciling with one another in this church so we can keep loving each other and, and blessing our enemies and praying for for those who hurt us and overcoming the evil one and fighting for justice in an unjust world. You know, I don't know who you are. Let me use an illustration of a car. Maybe you're the Lamborghini of life. Beautiful, put together, educated, you've got it. Or maybe you're the minivan of life. Or maybe you're the Kia. I don't know who you are. But there's one fundamental thing that ties all of those things together. If someone does not put gas in any style of car, it goes nowhere, no matter how beautiful or normal it is. It takes gas from somewhere else to fill something, to do something. And that is why, as I look at the vast thing I just outlined for you, that we are going to focus this year on the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. For if we are going to live just basic, faithful Christian lives, let alone step out and ask for the world to be different, let alone asking for the impossible to become possible, to be loved, to be a truth teller, to keep forgiving one another, keep doing this family thing, let alone accomplishing the plans of C4, we are going to need something not of this world stronger than education or background or gift. We are going to need a power source that none of us sitting in this room or in the north or online will ever ever have from our backgrounds. If we're going to keep stepping out in another person's power, though, if we're going to get filled by someone else, we need to stop at the beginning of this year and ask a very important question. Who is he? Is the Holy Spirit an it, a person? Is this like Star Wars and the Force? Then people call him the Holy Ghost. Is he Casper? I'm confused. And when you talk to Christians and non-Christians about the Holy Spirit, he seems vague, mysterious, and not relatable. Jesus is relatable. The Father might be relatable, but the Holy Spirit isn't. I was praying over my son last night and dedicating him as I do every night to the Trinity. And he said to me, why do you keep talking about the Spirit? Isn't that a ghost? And he was trying to wrap his mind around that. Who is he? But not only who is he, here's another question. What does he actually do? 
And that question I just asked you is key for this whole series, and by the way, this whole year, and also our future. How do I know as an individual, as a pastor, as a group of Christians, as a seeker, how can I know when the Holy Spirit is actually working in my life, is really showing up in a church, is really doing something new in my neighborhood, my school, my country, and then, by the way, how do I know when it is not Him? So let's just have an honest moment as we look at the vast things that we are called to do in common faithfulness. Many of us sitting here, especially you who've grown up in church or done church for a while, like I said, you're good with Jesus. And depending maybe on your background, you might be okay with the Father. But when the Holy Spirit conversation begins, many of us in the room get unsure or we're scared because we think he's going to make us do really weird things. By the way, he might. This summer I was with my family in the Bay of Fundy. It was a stunning day. We were the only boat within miles. My family was the only one on this boat. It was silent, there was no wind, and we were whale watching. And suddenly, to our delight and our surprise, right beside our boat, 12 feet away, a 40-foot whale emerged. We were watching this, I started screaming for the kids, come, come see this, and they came out and said, yeah, yeah, we've seen one before, we're gonna go back coloring. I'm like, oh. People fly from South Korea to see this. Oh, anyway, go color, SpongeBob or whatever. And I'm watching this whale, and we, it got so close to our boat that when it blew its blowhole, my wife and my mother-in-law got sprayed. We followed this majestic, powerful, somewhat scary beast for 35 minutes as it fed. Now let me use this illustration, hopefully, to bring this home to all of us. Many of us, especially as Christians, like the idea of watching something powerful far, far away. We want to be like in the boat whale watching with the binoculars. Oh, look, I thought, yeah, it's over there. Many others are like, no, no, I don't want the distance. I want to be close. I want to be 12 feet away from the majestic beast. And I even every once in a while want to get that little spray. It's mucus, but spray, oh. (laughs) The Bible says... You don't get to watch the Holy Spirit from a distance. And the Bible says you don't get to watch him from the safety of a boat. And you can't even just sort of get a sprint. No, no. You have to go swimming with danger to find out what he's involved in. And so this is the call to our church once again. See, it's what C.S. Lewis so brilliantly got when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Lucy was talking to Mr. Beaver and Lucy was afraid to meet Aslan, the Christ character, and said, well, I'm sort of afraid to meet a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Oh, no, no, he's not safe. Oh, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The Holy Spirit is at the epicenter of everything we do, everything we are called to do, and no longer can not one of us, not one of us, watch him from a distance. We must go swimming with him to see what he is about to do among us. If we're going to find out who the Holy Spirit is, we need to dive into the Scriptures The beginning of the Holy Spirit story actually for us begins in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. In the very second verse of the Bible, we find him. It says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. See, the Holy Spirit already in the second verse of the Bible is, is present. And he's bringing creation from nothing to something, ex nihilo. And from that moment, hundreds and hundreds of accounts of the Holy Spirit are found throughout the Old Testament. Do you remember when Moses was leading Israel out of Egypt? 
The very thing that takes place in that moment is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Exodus 13, 21, by day, God went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or by night. This is what theologians call the Shekinah glory of God, the very dwelling presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. This exact same presence was given when Moses found or was given the Ten Commandments. This happens at the dedication of Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple. This same Holy Spirit encounter is when the fire came down with Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel when he confronted the, the Baal prophets. This same encounter happens when both Ezekiel and Isaiah are called into ministry. And by the way, this is the same glory, the same light, the same presence that shone around the shepherds when the angels announced and declared that Jesus Christ was coming. Side note, Christmas is only 96 days away. There you go. At the heart of the Christmas story, we find the Holy Spirit. At the epicenter of our faith, like I just said, Luke 1.35, and the angel speaking to Mary said, the Holy Spirit will be upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the Holy One to be born in you will be called the Son of God. She, Mary, this tween, would have known that word because overshadow was a common word used in the religion of the Jews. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the waters. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the temple and filled it. The, the Holy Spirit now overshadows and resides within Mary. See, this is amazing. Mary a teenager on the fringe of her culture and a nothing in the known world in that time would actually become the first prototype and example of every single Christian that would follow after her. For when we become Christians, Jesus moves into our heart and resides in us by who? The Holy Spirit. And heaven declares over every one of us, you are now favored. 30 years later, Jesus starts his ministry and in that moment that would change the trajectory, of course, of humanity, we find the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.21, when all the people were being baptized by John, well, Jesus was baptized too. And when he was praying, heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit was sent to affirm Jesus' identity, his ministry, so his death and resurrection and ascension would be validated. Here we see, by the way, God in his fullness. You have the Father's voice. You have God the Son, now incarnate, in flesh. You have the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, the reality of the blessed Trinity. But never, ever miss this. The Holy Spirit was not just given to validate Jesus. The Holy Spirit was given to empower Jesus. As I've preached many times here before, think about it. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he has never healed, never cast out demons, he has never given new teaching, and no one has ever followed him. Yet right when the Holy Spirit lightened upon Jesus, at that moment, all of his ministry began and new things broke forth. See, the third person of the Trinity, the blessed Holy Spirit, empowers God the Son who is sent by the Father. The same spirit that hovered over creation, the same spirit that led God's people in the wilderness, the same spirit that filled the tabernacle of Moses and filled and overshadowed Solomon's temple, the same spirit that was in the mouth of the prophets of the Old Testament, the same spirit that lightened on Jesus at his baptism and empowered him is the exact same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. 
So many of us who have grown up in church have never made this connection. Jesus was not just sort of dead. He was dead, dead, dead. How did Jesus get raised physically from the dead after three days sitting in a grave? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Romans 1.14. Jesus, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the same spirit that is in you if you are a Christian physically rose Jesus from the dead. And then when the church started, of course we find the Holy Spirit at the center of the action. Acts chapter 2, we're going to do this series together after this series, the book of Acts, and it says, when the day of Pentecost started, They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. See, the Holy Spirit, and that's just a mini summary, is that every single major act of holy history, he is the key for you, us, knowing God. He is the key for you understanding the scriptures. Without the Holy Spirit, you will never understand the written word of God. He is the key for you walking with Jesus, being in Jesus, and knowing Jesus. Actually, whether you've known it or not, he's the keeper of your faith, he's the giver of your hope, and he's the maintainer of your love. That is why Paul said, if you truly want to understand how you walk with God or might walk with God and know all the benefits of God, it is only exclusively always through the Holy Spirit. This next verse I'm about to read is critical for our whole year. It's 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It is the great summary, actually, of our experiential faith. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How do I know? Think about this. How do I know? How do I walk in? How do I understand that, as we sang at this site this morning, that God is a good, good Father? How do I know the love of the Father? How do I understand and experience the grace and the ongoing, eternal, undeserved mercy of Jesus? By the fellowship the friendship and the partnership, the binding force of the Holy Spirit. Not watching some distant part away or even close. No, walking in him and with him. So, of course, it should not shock us that when Jesus sent out the original church to a broken and lost and blind and spiritually deaf and hostile and dead world just like ours, he gave them good news, he gave them teaching, and he gave them power that was not their own. I mean, if you've done church for a while, you know this, but think about it now through the lens of the Spirit. Matthew 28, there, therefore go and make disciples of all people, groups, all nations, all skin colors, and you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You teach them everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, number one, don't miss this little theological moment. Notice there is one name, but three persons. As Athanasius once wrote, we do not baptize Christians into the name of God and the two names of his creatures. There is one God found in three persons. But have you asked yourself the question, how does Jesus stay with me to the very end of the age? And how does Jesus never leave or forsake me? Because he's not here that I can see by the presence and the power of of the Holy Spirit. 
See, let me just put this out like this. You cannot know God. You cannot talk to Jesus. You cannot experience Jesus. You cannot read the scriptures. You cannot have eternal life without the Holy Spirit because he is God. Every experience you've ever had if you're a Christian, every moment at that campfire at camp or that moment where you became a Christian or you sensed the presence of God or you understood scripture or you were able to forgive someone or wreck every single experience you've had with Jesus, the Father, or other Christians that is godly was always the Holy Spirit. You just probably didn't know. He is the source, the only door. He's the only access to Jesus, as Jesus is our only access to the Father. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a force. He's not a ghost. He is God. He's a person in the Godhead, and he's your everything if you're a Christian here today. That is why for 2,000 years, all faithful churches have confessed things like the Nicene Creed, where we've declared full of faith and intellectual truth that we believe in the Holy Spirit. He is God, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and Son, He is worshipped and He is glorified. Now, that is who the Holy Spirit is. He's God. He's the power of God. He's the presence of God. And He Himself is God. And he has done profound things. Our whole faith rests on the movement of the, of the Spirit throughout history. But what he is doing for us right now, in this moment, whether we feel him or not, is just as amazing. See, whether a lot of people understand this or not, it's the Holy Spirit who starts this deal called salvation in our everyday life. Without the Holy Spirit, you would have never known the seriousness of your sin. You never would have understood your need for a Savior. See, on our own as human beings, we trust in ourselves. We invent religions where our good works prove ourselves to God. We make God what we want Him to be, or we say He doesn't exist at all, or He might exist, and we definitely downplay sin, and it's not that bad. I'm just broken. I'm not sinful. But when the Holy Spirit shows up, He actually begins to illuminate to everyday people how serious our condition is. See, here's what we need to understand as we begin this year this way together. The world, us humans, don't need new glasses. We need new eyes. We need an operation that comes from, we literally need new eyes to be inserted in and a new understanding in our mind because we will never understand how terrible our condition is without him and how beautiful the answer is that has been sent. Jesus was preparing to leave and he said this in John 16, 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because people don't really believe in me. Righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can't see me anymore. And about judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. See, the Holy Spirit gives us a gift that no one wants but everyone needs to show us how serious our sin is that we're lost and broken and we're against God and we're an enemy of God and we have broken his holy law and without intervention, we will be lost forever. The Holy Spirit goes to religious and unreligious, educated and uneducated people and says, no, no, you see yourself like this, but heaven sees you like this and this is your true condition. The Holy Spirit is the great giver of bad news that we're in deep trouble. 
and the Holy Spirit at the same time is the giver of the greatest news because when he reveals our brokenness and our sinfulness and the wrath that we are under, he immediately does not just leave us and say, hope that works out for you. He says, now let me show you who has been sent. He's the one who shows you Jesus. When he shows you your sin and your brokenness and your sinfulness and the wrath you're under and shows you Jesus, if you turn, he's also the one who picks you up like a husband picking up his bride and walks you over the threshold into new faith and new life. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't even cross the line of faith. Do you know the story of Nicodemus? This great man of Nicodemus is found in John 3. There was a Pharisee, a religious scholar and leader named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, you know, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. I mean, no one could be performing signs you're doing if they, if they weren't sent from him. Jesus said, well, I tell you the truth. Uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Well, how can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked? I mean, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mom's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, no, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised that I'm telling you, you must be born again. Everyone was in their mom's belly in a water sack and it broke. Everyone's born of water. But the evolution from flesh to spirit never works and will never work. You cannot use the power of you or religion or good works or education or psychology or science to meet God personally. You may know about him, even understand what he's up to, but you cannot meet him and be put in right relationship with him. It takes divine intervention and divine invitation. Jesus says, Nick, you know God's will. I mean, you're Jewish like I am. But not only that, you're a, you're a profound leader in our community, and you've got the Ten Commandments, and you've got the Torah, and you've got the prophets. You've memorized, I'm sure, Genesis to Malachi. You've learned it from childhood. You know who God is, what his will is even for the world, for families, for relationship. You can discern right and wrong, which makes you superior, right, Nicodemus? I mean, you think as a Jewish leader, you're far beyond the ignorant flocks of non-Jews who worship idols and, and demons and invent philosophies and religions because you're a Jewish man too. You're circumcised. Let's just put that on the table and you've got God's mark on you, so you're good, right? No. A real person that does not just know about God but knows God Never trust in what they do because they can't do it all the time. See, God is perfect and demands perfection. You need heaven to change you because your efforts, Nicodemus, your best efforts don't cut it. You must be born of the Spirit, born of above. In other words, no Holy Spirit, no Jesus, no Jesus, no access, no favor, no relationship, no reconciliation with the Father, no Father, nothing. Paul, who was Nicodemus, but a violent version, very much a great archetype of what we're seeing in many movements in the Middle East today, killing in the name of God, brilliant and educated, who met Christ and was found by Christ and changed by the Holy Spirit, would utter these words in Romans 8 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Jesus, they don't belong to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and the Holy Spirit reveals the true nature of Jesus. And oh, the Holy Spirit actually was the one who gave you faith. And the Holy Spirit was the one who walked you over the threshold called salvation. And the Holy Spirit made you born again. But there's more. 
Jesus, when he was telling his original friends that he was leaving and they would not accept it and could not accept it, Jesus said one of the most shocking things that even to this day, many of us who have grown up in the church do not believe in our hearts. He said in John 14, 6, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send you another advocate, and he's going to help you. He's going to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. Now, the world can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, the word another, if you're a circular, highlighter person, in Greek, there's two another's a different kind of another, or the same kind of another. And Jesus, to the shock of many of us, says, I'm sending the same kind. What? Oh, yes, I'm sending someone just like me. The Holy Spirit, our helper, our counselor, our advocate, the one who stands in the gap, and notice he is permanent. Once the Spirit is given, he never leaves. He's called the Spirit of Christ. By the way, that's where we get that Sunday school phrase, I invited Jesus into my heart. But here's the power of this understanding, and it matters for your everyday life. It matters when you're suffering, and it matters when we step out as a church. It was Michael Horton, a different pastor in the States, who was reflecting on this, and he got this bang on when he wrote this. He says, the logic of this statement by Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit, our counselor, is the same as having Jesus physically accessible right now. Now, let me just stop. I think any person in this room, seeker or believer, would say, no, that's not true. If I could sit with Jesus for an hour, just with him physically, my life would be fundamentally altered and would be better forever. Jesus comes along and says, you're wrong. I've already sent another who's just like me, but he doesn't leave. Michael Horton says this, can you imagine if Jesus was in Jerusalem today? All the airlines would be applying for routes to the Middle East. You wouldn't be able to book a seat on a plane, streamers, passenger liners, trains to Europe and Asia. They'd all be moving towards Jerusalem. And even if you could manage to get to close where Jesus was, there'd be long convoys and great crowds of people. We would come to see Jesus, but it would be nearly impossible to get within arm's reach of him. But we have access to the Holy Spirit. He's with you right now and always. He's on our side, and even better, he is just like Jesus. He's our counselor, helper, helper, and comforter. Actually, the Greek word paraclete means a legal counsel who stands in the stead and shares your burden and gets you out. He says that he would live beside you and in you. This is so critical. You sat in the hospital lately and got bad news, and all the wind, the Holy Spirit is with you right there. There. Have you buried someone this week? Buried someone in the last year and you have experienced the great loss of death? The Holy Spirit is with you in that moment. Do you not know what to say? The Holy Spirit is with you. Are you having the best time in your life? The Holy Spirit is with you. Are you having trouble parenting? The Holy Spirit is with you. The Spirit of Jesus Christ never leaves anyone that God has declared his child. And why that's important is because so many of us in this church have this idea in our mind that Jesus' idea isn't good enough. If Jesus was around, we'd all be better. And Jesus shouts through the scriptures in love, no, I've sent someone who's equal to me. Walk with him. That was my plan all along. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the epicenter of your Christian walk. There's more. You ever read Ephesians chapter 1? 
my favorite passage in the Bible. By the way, it's the great summary of the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's all these amazing statements. You're a saint. You have peace with God. You're a son and daughter of God. You're adopted by Jesus. You're called, elected, foreknown before the beginning of time. All these unbelievable identity-forming love statements over an everyday normal Christian, and they can never be ripped away. And in the middle of that great truth that is spread over us and spoken over us and sung over us, in our dark moments as Christians, we ask questions like, well, maybe it can be altered or stolen or given away, or maybe I can walk away from it. No. None of the work of the Father and the Son can ever be lost in your life because of the Holy Spirit's presence. Ephesians 1.13, when you believed, you were marked in God with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. As I've preached before, this comes from the idea of a seal where a king would take wax and put it on a piece of paper and take his signet ring and say, this is law. He said, the spirit of God is the wax seal in your life saying that God loves you, will never leave you, and you are owned by him. He is called, amazingly, the tattoo the image of your soul literally being tattooed and you can't laser him off. He is a pledge. He is a down payment. He's the first mortgage payment for what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. See, here is the beautiful, profound, undeserved, shocking, confusing mercy of God. When God decides to call you, even if you fight him or run from him, he will never let you go. He will never stop calling you child because once you are God's possession, you are sealed and you are sealed until Jesus returns, the day of redemption. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't belong. Without the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Without the Holy Spirit, you're condemned. Without the Holy Spirit, you're actually not a child of God. Only through the Spirit does Jesus walk into your life, and only through Jesus do we have access to the Father. That's why in Ephesians 2.18 it says, for through Jesus, Jews, Greeks, all of us have access to the Father by one Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit has done a great work in the past, and the Holy Spirit promises a great work in the future. And positionally, he's done all this amazing stuff for us. But as we're going to explore today and in the next few weeks, the Holy Spirit is doing stuff in the now. It's not just past or future. He's gas in the car for holy living, for courage, for the impossible becoming possible. He's the one that holds us in the best times, in the worst of times, and the darkest of times. One of the most amazing passages but the Holy Spirit is found in Romans 8. He said, you know, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Let me ask an honest question. Anyone weak this morning? Like weak, struck dumb. He says, in that moment, the Spirit of Jesus is present. We don't even know what we should be praying for, but the Spirit, oh no, he starts praying. He intercedes for us with groans that cannot, our words cannot express. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. He stands in the gap. He intercedes for us. He, he prays for us. And when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit groans out perfect prayers for us. And what's so amazing about this passage is the Holy Spirit knew we would end up here. We've all had times when we don't know how to pray. We've got no words, no feelings, no f just nothing. In that moment, when our words do not matter anymore, the Holy Spirit prays for us. I love when another wrote, the Holy Spirit does not give armchair advice. He rolls up his sleeves and helps us bear our weakness. That is real 
help. The Holy Spirit is God. He convicts us of sin. He reveals Jesus. He makes the scriptures come alive so they understood. He leads us into all truth. He ushers us through the threshold called being born again. He prays for us. He possesses us. He suffers with us. He comes alongside of us. And if that's not enough, never forget his prayers are never wrong, never misplaced, never tainted by sin, ego, or want. He prays out perfect prayers to a perfect God over our life, which should give you great assurance that in the end, God wins. The Holy Spirit is the person we desperately need to move forward in the basic things of our faith, let alone the impossible things he's asked us to do. You may be joining us here this morning and you are not a Christian. You are most welcome. Or maybe you have the title, like I say, but you know you're not a follower, not for real. You maybe have another faith or no faith. And you're saying, okay, well, John, that was interesting, I think. What does that mean for me? Well, let me just give you some thoughts. If you're wondering about eternal life or purpose or Jesus or Christianity or spirituality, fill in your blank. Let me ask you to do something this week. Would you say out loud, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, show me my sin. I don't think it's as bad as John was saying. So, Holy Spirit, I'm saying out loud, if you're out there and you're, show me my sin. And show me, help me to really understand who Jesus really is. Not who I, for, show me him. Pick up a Bible this week, virtually or physically. Open a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you're really searching, start reading and say to him, Holy Spirit, do it out loud, because when you, say it out loud. Holy Spirit, if you're real, help me get this. Ask the Holy Spirit to come close to show you the bad news, the good news, and the great news. To see Jesus for who he really is. Ask him also for one last thing. Say to him, I don't even have faith, whatever that is. Would you give me that too? Come to him and ask for the impossible. Now for us who are Christians who have crossed the line of faith, let me give you a few parting thoughts as we begin our year together. Number one is this. Would we commit to being thankful to the Holy Spirit? So many of us spend almost all our time praising the Father and the Son, and the Spirit is always in the corner. The Holy Spirit is worthy of our glory and our praise and our prayers also because he is God. Amen? No, no, no. Be a Pentecostal. Amen? Amen. No, no, this matters. I'm going to challenge everyone in their connect group this week or in their devotional time to go through everything I have said that the Spirit of God has already done in holy history or in your life. And I would like you to sit with him and say, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for showing me my sin. Thank you for showing up and lightning over Mary and putting, thank, thank you for creation. Thank you for meeting Moses. Thank you for me, go through it. Thank you for showing me, thank you, thank you. Because grateful people do not get jaded and grateful people move forward when the spirit of God is at work because they know what is done and they know what matters and what does not matter. Be thankful and talk to the Holy Spirit. Go swimming with the whale. You may drown, but he'll bring you back to life. And here's the last thing. I started on purpose with that grand, overwhelming statement of what is facing us. 
And I know it's impossible. But I want to end by saying we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show up more in this church and not less. We need more and more and more of the Holy Spirit. Fear always stops his work. Bad theology can stop his work. History can stop his work if you've had a bad experience and it's been labeled the Holy Spirit. Or pain, or here's the biggest one, self-sufficiency. Fear, misuse theology, uh, pain, history, it all needs to be moved and replaced and healed for this church to keep stepping up and out, for us to live a normal Christian life, but also to accomplish what God has commanded this congregation to do. God says clearly in the scriptures, he will not allow us to go to a place that he's not assigned us to, and he will not give us something we cannot bear. So here is my call this morning. Would you stand with me as we end? North, would you do that too, please? Here's what we just want to think about and then pray about and prepare to respond to. We need in this church more of the Holy Spirit's prayers. We need more of the Holy Spirit's power. We need more of the Holy Spirit's giftings. We need more of the Holy Spirit's character. We need the Holy Spirit's mission. We need his truth. We need his comfort. We need the Holy Spirit's teaching. We need his witness. We need his conviction. As the old hymn says, we need him every hour. And let me just say, this is my last thought. Every great move of God in history for 2,000 years has begun when a church says, we need you, Holy Spirit, no matter what it will cost us. So would you pray this this morning as we prepare? Oh God, Father and Son and Spirit, blessed Trinity, one God, three persons. Thank you for what you've already done in this church and done with us. Thank you what you're going to do, and you, what you've called us to do. But here's our requests now. Number one, make us people who are thankful and understand the work of the Spirit. Number two, Holy Spirit, you know who's seeking, who's wondering, who, who doesn't fully understand. Would you meet them? Hear our prayer. But here's what we pray for our church. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Here, now, Come into our families, into our lives, into our thinking, into our theology, into everything we are. We will not, and we declare this as a church, we will not let fear of you stop this anymore. Fear is now removed. We will not fight you, Holy Spirit, and we will not run and flee from you. Father and Son, send the Spirit as you see fit. Would you help us to love, to forgive, to reach? and do all the things you asked us to do in this culture. We have great expectation and joy because we know if the Holy Spirit lightened on Jesus and did amazing things, he can do it with us today too. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. We're going to respond with communion today. So as the band prepares, I just want to say to you as my friends, my brothers and sisters, Communion, of course, we know is when Jesus, just before he was executed, took bread and he took actually a cup of wine over at Passover and said, you know, I'm, I've come to do this. We're going to have a new agreement, you and I. Forgiveness through my broken body. My blood shed, new covenant, new agreement. I'm going to make you a new people, a forgiven people. People who, by the way, don't know about the Spirit but walk with him. Jesus said, you know, on that night he betrayed, he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take communion in this church, 
like all churches around the world, we are celebrating and remembering the horrific death and great victory of Jesus. It says in the scriptures, if you're not a Christian, don't take this because you've actually not received the one it symbolizes. But this is always a good time to say yes to him. It says in the scriptures, if you're broken, if you're great, if you're bad or in the middle and you're a Christian, you're welcome to the table to celebrate his death and resurrection. But it says that if you are unwilling to deal with a sin in your life, it says don't take it until you've dealt with that because you drink judgment on yourself. But here's the last thing I'd like you to do as you take it. It's going to be passed actually today, not come forward. When you take it and you remember the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, would you ask the Holy Spirit to give you even stronger new eyes to see the profound love and work of Jesus on the cross? Could you do that today? Because he's the one who gets this. So Lord, as we prepare to ask for more of your work, would you meet us in this communion time? Would you bless these elements? They're only elements, but they symbolize the greatest thing that has ever taken place. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Convict us of sin. Show us where we need to reconcile. And help us to celebrate the great work of the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.